Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We set our career basically working for ourselves. Like we, we, we create a career by the things that we do for free that we, we invest our love into. We build a business by serving others. And that balancing act is almost like the inside person versus the outside person. So I'm, I am usually basically the inside person that's building the structures, building the systems, trying to like wire everything together on the financial and legal and technical and, you know, business structure and including staffing and teams and the, and generally people I partner with are basically driving the mission and the brand and the, and the public face. Like it is their name and entity and vision that is basically driving the purpose and the mission that we're after. And then I am basically crafting the engine for them that allows that mission to be accomplished. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Craig, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate you having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you by way of our friends at H, uh, Podcast Alley, who mm -hmm. they're probably the only podcast pitching agency that I actually say yes to. But that's because I think that one of the people they hired was Cher Hale, who's the only person I've never said no to in 10 years. Uh, literally, I don't think she's ever had a guest where we've said no when she pitched yeah. us. So, wow. I mean, they got to clip this and use it for themselves. Oh, I, well, I keep telling every publisher, I was like, you want to get guests on podcasts, hire Cher Hale. So this is like a commercial <laughs> for her. Uh, but anyways, um, I, you know, was telling you earlier, there's some, you know, one particular thing in your bio that immediately <laughs> got my attention. Um, so I thought it would be a perfect place to start. And that is Absolutely. what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made with your life and your uh, career? All right. So um, when I, I was born in New Mexico, um, my dad was a nuclear chemist. He worked at Los Alamos Laboratories, where um, they built the atomic bomb. He was he was born the year after World War II ended. So he was the not the generation that built the bomb, but he was the generation of scientists that came after them. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom was a, a hippie. My mom you know, was was a hippie. I I went to preschool in a teepee. Um, I grew up doing transactional analysis for tots. Um, and my mom was really into, let's just say alternate 
science or pseudoscience mm-hmm. as as a path to explore oneself. And so I got a lot of left brain and a lot of right brain um, activity at the same time. And just reconciling those two kind of forces in my life, I think has really set me on the path I've been on my entire life. Yeah, I, I mean, that was what struck me so much. I thought about, you know, two parents. I'm like, how could two people who have so little in common, a nuclear scientist and a hippie, actually you know coexist together because i feel like if i were with somebody who was a hippie and i was a nuclear scientist i'd be like you're full of shit 90 percent of the time when she said something um so yeah how did they i mean how did they they find that balance of you know teaching you to be open-minded about things that you can't prove with any evidence versus you know your dad whose probably entire life is centered around proving things with evidence you know i mean i I don't think they were stereotypical in either in either case Um, my dad so i mean the short version is I don't know. I mean, the, the biggest thing I think I learned from them, if I, if I had like a life lesson that I picked up young, it was with two parents that didn't really fit together, mm-hmm. that instead of divorcing, figured out how to fit together together better progressively yeah. over time. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, and it's been huge support for me in my marriage, in, in my, in just in my business. I don't, you know, the, the idea that we're, that, that it's on me to figure out how to make things work with people and that, that it's not just a matter of finding the perfect fit and then all the work is done. Yeah. I think it's just kind of baked in to who I am. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is this sort of almost, uh, you know, delusional idea that there's going to be this perfect fit where everything works. And, you know, people always say it's like, yeah, you know, getting married is the first part. It's like the being married is the real work. Cause I remember we had, um, uh, my friend Jennifer Tates here, she wrote a book called how to be single and happy. And right after she wrote it, people said, we'd like you to write a sequel titled how to be married and happy. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I mean, maybe it could just be how to be happy. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, I think that if we're looking at the, you know, at the place we are at or the people we are with to to fill that gap, mm-hmm. it's an external thing we're trying to, to use. And yeah. so, I mean, I don't know. That's I don't know if I, I don't know if I live that, but I aspire to that. I aspire to be I aspire to be able to be complete in whatever environment I'm in. Yeah. And well, so you mentioned preschool in a teepee and yeah. transactional analysis for tots. I was like, wait a minute, what the hell? What is <laughs> transactional analysis? For and, and you know, like what in the world was your education like going to preschool in a teepee? Like that part of it anyways. Um, you know, I mean, I, honestly, I don't really remember it that much. I mean, there was a lot of, I, I, I don't, I, I don't really know. So both, both my sister and I dropped out of high school. Um, and I don't know if we were ignored as kids or if my parents just gave us room to be us. And I think it's probably a mix of the two. I think my parents were so busy trying to figure themselves out that maybe they couldn't really help us figure ourselves out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking about this. A lot of people grow up feeling like they're not smart. Um, and there's a lot of entrepreneurs that look back and kind of feel like they, you know, they were proven that they weren't smart in school and they kind of have a chip on their shoulder about it. Both my sister and I dropped out of high school and then mm-hmm. I subsequently dropped out of college and both of us kind of had this inherent belief that we were smart, that mm-hmm. we were, um, and, and that's proven true in a lot of, you know, in most of my life. I mean, I've, I've spent my life kind of trading my intelligence for money or for position or for different things like that. Yeah. Um, but there is a path at which 
different a different approach from my parents would have set me up to be focused on what I have not accomplished as mm -hmm. opposed to a confidence that despite the fact that I didn't fit into the school system, it was not me that was broken. Okay, so that that is such a interesting way of looking at this because I think that, you know, when we sort of stereotype a high school dropout, it's like, oh, high school dropout deadbeat. But I mean, clearly you not only dropped out, but you also maintained the belief that you were smart. So two questions come from that. One, what did your mm -hmm. parents teach you about making your way in the world? And, you know, as somebody who was a high school dropout who was clearly smart and believes you're smart and traded your, has been able to trade your intelligence for money, what do you think we need to change in our education system so that people like you don't walk out of it saying, you know, this is a waste of time. I'm just going to drop out. And clearly, you know, you're better off for having dropped out, but that's not the case for 90% of the population. So, oh, okay. So, I mean, there's, there's a bunch in there. Yeah. Um, first of all, I probably don't look like a traditional dropout. For one thing, I graduated. Um, for one thing, I, I just stopped going. In my senior year, I just stopped going to school. Um, I think I got a point nine on my official transcript in my senior year. Um, but and, and I don't think I qualified for graduation, but no one called me on it. I was, I was in the honors program up to that point. I mean, I was a high productive functioning student. And I think people just assumed, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone even like, was aware that I hadn't hadn't qualified to to graduate, but I do it. I do have a diploma. Um, I ended up dropping out because I got a full time job at a local newspaper uh, doing uh, doing uh, publishing. Mm -hmm. So I ended. I didn't go nowhere. I literally got a job out of the high school newspaper that I had been working at for the last two years, and was working at a newspaper that hired me right out of high school. Um, and I just stopped going to any classes I didn't care about. Mm. Um, my dad, so my parents, when I, so then I went to the university of Washington, I, 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 part of, part of me dropping out of high school was that I, I got the acceptance letter to the university of Washington that didn't have that standard language that appeared on a lot of my friends, which is based on future grades. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it often says, you know, you're accepted to such and such based on future grades. <laughs> and mine, didn't, mine didn't say that. Um, and so if, if all I'm doing is completing high school to get into college, I already had college locked up. So I just stopped going to high school. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, my second quarter in college, um, I had picked up a job at a, a publishing house in downtown Seattle. Um, I was a graphic design major at the, at the time in the University of Washington, although, you know, two quarters in, that doesn't mean anything. Um, and I was working with the people I was eventually going to be taking my, my resume to years down the road in my head. And I, I just went full time. I just started working and, um, saw an opportunity in this market to to trade my knowledge of technology for access to designers mm -hmm. and um i ended up borrowing twelve hundred dollars from my parents to put down first and last on an office space um six hundred dollars a month for the office space um with just the belief that somehow we could build a business and and that could serve what we we're doing and that ended up effectively being the business I ran up until we, until I sold that IT company and, uh, and started creative live. Well, so let me ask you when you are in that position of, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, I mean, you basically, you know, say you're going to run an office, but did you know what business you were going to start or you just kind of, you know, I'll figure this out. So I, so background. So this is, this is 1988, 1989. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the 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 Macintosh had just come out. I think Illustrator 1.0 was out. I think Photoshop. I don't know if Photoshop 1.0 had come out. I think Photoshop 1.0 was about to come out, and the Adobe the uh, the the PostScript laser printer had come out about three or four years prior. Mm-hmm. And in in bigger markets, we had these Linotronic output bureaus that popped up, which were basically the place that graphic designers could take their page maker or illustrator files to and get high resolution slick paper printouts of it that they could put into their paste ups and use in their design. And at that time there was a lot of debate within the design community about whether computers could actually do the work of typography that they're used to sending out to professional typographers. Um, depending on how old, you know, someone is, they may not know what a professional typographer is because in the five to six years following that, all the professional typographers went out of business because mm-hmm. they were replaced by designers doing their own design. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was working at one of these output bureaus. So everybody that had a computer that was doing creative design work in the Seattle area had to come to either the place I was working or one other place in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I was a design major. I was asking a ton of questions. I basically saw this as an opportunity of seeing like these professionals coming into to my environment to run their output um, that I just got to like be educated by. And so they would teach me what good typography was. They would, they would, I'd be just asking all these questions. I'd be a sponge and soaking it up. And I realized over time there had something had shifted over, over time. I realized I had been answering and clarifying that by basically showing them things on the computer that they were saying were important to them that they didn't know how to do. So they were teaching me what good typography was. And I ended up troubleshooting and figuring out how they were able to do it on their computer that they didn't know how to do. Mm. Um, and so over time, I developed a following of professionals in the field that were coming to me for advice on how to make these brand new computers work. Mm. Um, and I just felt like there was an opportunity there. And so I think we, you know, in hindsight, in hindsight, it was not hard. In hindsight, we had a two or three clients that basically kept us fed. It didn't take very much because, you know, I, it didn't cost very much to live because I, I had I had nothing. Um but um, but we ended up getting a couple of clients. I ended up getting a couple of bigger clients. And then I slowly I got just a, enough clients that basically um, we had a really busy practice helping uh, designers uh, work with computers. And that kind of grew into the next 25 years of my life. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things that really strike me. Uh, one is you seem to have this almost inherent capacity to self-educate. Uh, that I wonder where that comes from and whether it's something that people can develop. Because I think that when I look at sort of my post, you know, uh, formal education, education, if you can call it that, it's definitely been much more driven by my true interests. Whereas I felt like I was force fed what I was supposed to learn when I was in college and high school. Uh, so you dropping out of high school is not surprising to me because I always thought, you know, when kids don't do well in high school, I'm like, it's not because they're not smart, it's because they're bored. Uh, but that was one thing. But then also, you didn't seem to see any of these things as disadvantages that would keep you from doing these things. And so often I think that people have these perceived disadvantages and perceived weaknesses, and they often can't see the distinction between what are their real advantages and real disadvantages. Cause of course all of us have real, you know, weaknesses and strengths mm-hmm. um, that I think is often left out of the sort of the self-improvement literature where we don't like to talk about the genetic reality of what we're possibly capable of, even though those things matter because, you know, you believing that you're intelligent, the fact that you are, you know, we can't ignore the fact that genetics play a role in that. I think that yeah. we'd be lying if we we're saying that. I mean, Having a dad who is a nuclear scientist probably helps. But um, <laughs> the thing is that 
yet that all that being said, why do you think it is that people are so limited by their perceived disadvantages? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. So, yeah, okay. Perceived by the perceived disadvantages, I think... I think for whatever reason, I was not raised to perform to someone's external, like my parents did not have their, their personal self-esteem tied to my performance as their child. Mm. So I, for whatever reason, I did not, I was not performing for someone else, or if I was performing for someone else, it felt false. And so I think I think a lot of people trade what they most want by trying to look like they have it. So I think a lot of people trade the opportunity to learn by trying to look like they already know it mm-hmm. or, um, or we get so caught up in trying to check someone else's box on our life 
that we never like take the uh, never take over control of those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and school, I, I think, I, I mean, I think traditional school does that, especially so if parents are getting their value out of what grades their kids bring home, and if teachers are getting their value out of what grades kids are getting. And if kids are communicated that their job is basically to look good and to hit other people's marks for their lives, I think that it really lessens their ability to create their own choice for what they want to create. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, here's the thing. You take, you take, I mean, I used to think I was self-made. I used I used to think that this path was a path that, like I found myself and of course I did not have, I didn't have people telling me I couldn't go down this path all the time. There's an assumption that maybe I was supposed to do something, but like a lot of people let me slide by, by a lot. And a lot of people granted me a lot of access and trust that I hadn't earned. And so, you know, I had an easier path than, than others might have. Mm-hmm. Um, but but ultimately, I think regardless of like where people start, at some point in life, we have to stop caring what society thinks about us, or to some degree, if we can, if we can, if we can set aside trying to hit someone else's mark, someone else's mark for our life, it gives us the opportunity to figure out what the hell we want to do with our own life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, <clears throat> speaking of which, uh, how did the way that your parents raised you influence your own uh, role as a parent? Well, that, uh, so you know what? I, I I can't even I can't even answer that because my whole relationship with parenting got rewritten by my first child to a degree that I can't even like. There, there's no there's no way I can see my life without it. So, um, so my my daughter Pepper was more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we became pregnant with Pepper in two, uh, nineteen. Yeah. 2000 and she was born in 2000. So it's 1999. Um, and we were pre pre-diagnosed that she had down syndrome and, um, also that she was probably not going to survive through the pregnancy. And so we had the most painful pregnancy together that, uh, that is imaginable emotional every night before we would go into the hospital to see if she was still there. We'd read a book to her and decide that if she was gone the next day that, um, that she had left after we had read her that story um, and burned out all of the, all the sorrow and loss of having a non-typical child, having a child with delays, like burn that all out before she was born. And so she was born into this world where she was a miracle and, and she had made it through to birth. And, and then from three months on, I have been just, like I was brought into this special needs education program for her. Uh, University of Washington has amazing special needs education for Down syndrome, for autism, for all these different things. And I have no idea what type of parent I would have been with two typically developing kids because I had my entire life and my entire experience with education rewritten through the process of raising a child that was never going to hit society's marks. Yeah. Um, and had a lot to give. Hmm. Excuse me. Yeah. Well, so you, you know, mentioned the pregnancy. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you knew this early on. Mm-hmm. Feel free to, to not answer yeah. this question. 
at any point, if you know this, because I mean, I imagine you know that pretty early, right, in the pregnancy. Yeah. What made you say, okay, let's just continue down this path, despite knowing how difficult it's going to be? I mean, well, first of all, um, we didn't have any clue. So first of all, it's actually not difficult, but we didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we both, both my wife and I at times kept looking at the other to call it, you know, said, you know, like, do you want out? And kind of hoping the other would give us the out. And we just never took the out. And I think to some degree it was because we were also told that she would probably not live to birth Mm -hmm. that we just decided that if she were going to like, you know, if she were going to go past the odds we were given, we were not going to call it ahead of that. Mm. Um, But it wasn't, it it wasn't moral and it wasn't, um, you know, we didn't have particularly strong objections to ending the pregnancy on any ground other than just personal choice. Mm -hmm. And neither of the two of us were ready to make that call in sync with each other to actually do something about it. No. So, so we, we failed to act, we gave it to her and then she, she arrived. So you mentioned that your entire <laughs> narrative about education mm-hmm. uh, and raising children was written. Uh, talk to me more mm-hmm. about that because I, you know, I mean, I don't, to be candid, I don't know much about Down syndrome other than what I've seen mm-hmm. on TV or, you know, <clears throat> basically with the media portrait. So mm-hmm. what do you want people to know about this that you think they don't? And what do you think media does wrong in terms of portraying this? You know, I don't even, I don't even really worry about. So, um, so I don't, I don't particularly feel like I've, so I'm not, I'm not really fighting against media on anything. So yeah. here, here's, here's what I learned. Here's my experience. Um, first of all, we, we had gone through the process. We were not getting pregnant when we, when we were intending to get pregnant. So we would, we had started the process of adopting. So part of the process of adopting is you go through a lot of education and coaching to basically say, your child is not necessarily going to look like you. Your child is not, you know, there's a lot of characteristics that are going to be different from you than, than what a biological child might have. And more than that, we were given the sheet of paper where we had to accept or reject this long list of disabilities that we would accept in a child that we were going to be matched with. Um, and mental delay was something both of us were unwilling to be matched with. So we, we have a sheet of paper. We had, would have not have accepted our child in a matching process that we had control over. Um, and the big thing that came to me when we got into education is I wanted to compare Pepper's development to typical. I, want, I, I was looking for those external markers for me, me to know how we were doing as a parent, how she was doing, how was, how was her development doing. And at every stage along the way, every professional that I was involved with with the school would never play that game. They wouldn't tell us we were wrong for playing that game, but they would never engage us on anything other than Pepper's own personal development. They'd never give us any connection to any other children, never give us a connection to where she would be developmentally. It was always about her and her next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the when I look back at this process, like the two biggest lessons I learned from that process is to let go of comparison, to basically stop comparing to what other people are doing and to let go of fear of the future. Because the other thing we got is we got this long list of fears that we could have about the future. And I'll tell you what, almost none of them ever surfaced. Mm. Um, we had less medical issues with Pepper than with, you know, with her brother. Like there's just, it, it has been, it has been, I mean, I don't want to say easy, 
but it's been easy. I mean, it's been easy as long as we are not playing the game of comparison. Mm-hmm. And as long as we are not trying to worry about what could happen in the future, life itself has been really good. Yeah. And, and then that showed up again. Oh, when, so we have a typically developing son. I have a typically developing son who is um, two and a half years younger than his sister. Um, and he was raised into this world where, as parents, we were not marking him against other things. And, and, and he was raised with a lot of special needs kids around him. Um, if anything, it was dry. I, I could see him as a, as a young, like a seven or eight year old playing baseball really was frustrating him. Um, that no, that no one was playing to win. Like they were all playing to play and like, like he wanted to like beat somebody and like was just not finding that match for him anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, like he's found his own place with competitiveness as he has gotten older, but he also is incredibly, he's, he's just got this built in understanding that other people think differently and have different capacities in a, in a way that I don't think, like, I don't think I would ever get to um, without having it that young. Like I learned it as an adult, but it's a different thing. It's something I carry on intellectually and it's so baked into who he is. It is just a joy to see. Yeah. How, so describe how the relationship develops between siblings when you have a neurotypical kid and then a special needs kid. What is that like? Um, I, so early on, so he, so early on, (laughs) I mean, there, she was close to him developmentally, like in a lot of ways, um, up until they were like about five or six. So he was, he was a couple years younger. Um, he was smaller than her for a period of time, but then there is, I would say that, um, like growing up as kids, there's a, there are, there are a lot of similarities and, uh, and they're kind of a commonplace. And then at some point he started getting taller. He started getting more verbal. Like he just had different skills. Um, You know what? I would even have to ask, I'd have to ask Wyatt, like what that feels like, but from the outside, um, you know, he's just, he, he just, he had a relationship with his sister for who she was. And, you know, she wasn't necessarily doing the things that, that some of his friends were doing in different areas. But if anything, I think that the biggest thing was that he was always Pepper's brother. So the one thing that he, like he really felt was Pepper was very, very outgoing, knew everybody in school and so Wyatt basically grew up in a world in which everybody knew his sister because she stood out. She was different. She was memorable. And she was also non-threatening mm-hmm. so that she was non-threatening and she was friendly. So the kids were not trying to compete with her. Kids would remember her. That, like there was a lot of connection. And so Wyatt went through life basically being Pepper's brother. And he was so happy when Pepper graduated for like left high school. <laughs> and like, you know, when, you know, when he got to be, when he went to high school, he did not tell people he was Pepper's brother because he didn't want to be Pepper's brother anymore. He wanted to be, he wanted to be Wyatt. Yeah. And um, my wife and I had traded off last name. So my wife kept her last name. And so our kids had different last names, which made it easier for him to not be Pepper's brother when he got into, uh, into high school. Um, it's, it's nice now because he does like introducing Pepper to his friends in college. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this point where he could definitely feel like he was trying to be, you know, his own person. Yeah. 
By the way, this, this we're, we're not going anywhere. I thought we'd go in this conversation. This is this is really fun. Yeah. Well, that, that that's that, I've been known yeah. to do that to people. Well, yeah. I am really curious. But but, but actually, but actually, you know, but but this actually comes back to like my life and my career and everything else, and like like building online education. I mean, um, I this all for me, my personal story, it resonates back to the stuff that I believe that I was being implanted with when I was growing up, but it's really hard for me to tell whether I'm rewriting my story of my childhood to fit the mindset I'm in today. Yeah. Or if, or if those seeds really were planted when I was growing up in New Mexico. Hmm. Yeah. Um, It's, it's kind of, I I know what you mean. I feel like there are parts of like who I am, you know, and the way I was raised that still play out in the work that I do today. Uh, And then there are parts that I rebel against. So, you know, this is something, like I said, I, I, you know, I'm just really curious. What is the development of somebody who has Down syndrome like? Like, what is their world like day to day? Um, and, and, you know, what have their lives become like as adults, you know, at, you know, through adolescence? What is life like for them? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I mean, there's no there's no singular answer to that. No. Um, um, it ranges. Um, uh, so in in the case of so in the case of Pepper, so in the case of Pepper, Pepper verbally um, um, is not as communicative as as some of her peers as, as some of her peers with Down syndrome, and certainly as as her peers who are typically developing. Um, she also had a hearing impairment that we didn't catch until later, and so. She doesn't have as strong a verbal skills as as some of her friends do. I would say emotionally, I mean emotionally. So emotionally, she is really balanced. I mean, she um, is able to navigate a lot of things, keeps a lot of relationships going. Like like needs to keep connected with people. She currently has a job teaching art at a local um, elementary school. There's a there's a a before and after school program that she is an art teacher for. Um, and um you know i i uh, and um and probably probably will need support for for the rest of her life so like one of my um one of my you know one of my requirements for me as a parent is i financially i need to make sure that she is taken care of throughout her lifespan so mm-hmm. um she probably is not going to manage her own money um um she will probably work, but um, will probably need additional support. She'll probably need to have someone around her just making sure that uh, she's okay. But more on the level of like like someone needing a care in an adult care home. So so someone needing just just someone to touch in periodically to make sure everything's okay, not needing necessarily on a chronic or daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that... Um, she needs what what a lot of people need, which is a feeling, like she, you know, to to like create her own things and to to contribute back and to be part of society, to have friends and to uh, to feel like she makes an impact. Yeah. Well, speaking of creating things and contributing, I mean, mm-hmm. you alluded to online education throughout this. You mm-hmm. mentioned Creative Live at the mm-hmm. beginning of our conversation. I didn't realize you were yeah. with with Chase. Well, I, so yeah, so no, yeah, I, um, you know what, we, I should probably put that higher in my biography, although I was trying to not, so no, I'm actually, I mean, I'm, I'm the, I mean, I, I built the, so I brought Chase into Creative Live. So Creative Live was the company that I incubated in my IT company. Um, in 2010, we spun it off onto a separate entity. Chase came in as a partner okay. and we basically spent, um, spent the next five years building it up to, to what it became. Hmm. Wow. Well, so let's talk about online education in particular, because yeah. I think that, um, you know, there's something that struck me on your site where, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about this idea of building, you know, million dollar online businesses, one partner at a time. How mm-hmm. does that happen? Like, how does, because I, there are so many people listening to this who are probably like, that sounds amazing. That's what I want. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of, when I looked at the online world, I said, you know, the internet is like a developing country. I mean, it's basically a, a reflection of America in a nutshell, where mm-hmm. you have sort of the the 1% on the internet. Like you look at the Tim Ferriss's of the world. It's like, you know, you look at the podcast in the top 1% at iTunes. It's like the lion's share of the money goes to a small group of people who 
some of them are, are there purely out of talent. Some of them are there because of good timing. Uh, you know, some of them are there simply because they had the skills. Like, it, there's so many variables that go into this, some of which can't be replicated. This is, you know, one thing I've, I've often found is that people, when they come across prescriptive advice, overlook context a lot. Um, they don't want to account for some of these things. Like, oh, I can just do what that person did and I'll get the results. It's like, no, you won't look in the mirror. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, like, how is it that somebody like Chase becomes somebody like Chase and somebody else who, you know, puts in just as much effort doesn't make anywhere near as much progress? Like, what's the difference? Well, yeah, to, to some degree, I don't know. So, for, so first of all, let's, let's, let's assume luck and, um, and, 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 Preparation and soil. So let's, let's assume that there's there's opportunistic stuff. Um, the, the people I partner with generally are already in the 1% for some type of audience following. So generally, I partner with, with creatives that have already created a following of over 250,000 people in some fashion, be it Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Like they, they have already created that niche where they have a really large following. Um, so that, that was true of Chase. Um, that's true of most of the people that I partner with. So I actually don't know how you get to that place. Yeah. Um, I shortcut that by partnering with people who have already done that. I, I will say just from my experience of working with people that are at that level, um, they they are willing to trade other parts of their life to get that. And they, and they prioritize it to a degree that, that people who say they want it, um, don't. Now that doesn't mean that simply prioritizing is enough. There's probably, as you were saying, you know, like some additional luck and opportunity and everything else Mm -hmm. skill. Um, I will also say that there is also a degree of, I don't know, ADHD or, um, um, kind of like, let's say, creative thinking that is attractive to view from the outside, that like draws viewers in, but sometimes um, works against those same people creating like a productive team of people around them mm-hmm. or or doing some of the things that are necessary to build a really effective business. Yeah. So a lot of times, and, and this is kind of where I fall in. So my my kind of my magic sweet spot is basically to work with people that have a huge following social following the ability to create the ability to educate but are missing something in that connection to basically be able to build a business of the size and capacity that their audience would warrant yeah well i mean i I, it's funny because i'm going through this julian smith has been mentoring me and you know he's like basically the the conversation we keep having is like you're sitting on a gold mine and i'm teaching you how to mine it because you know a thousand episodes in the archives been at this for 10 years and brian holiday and i talked about this we were having a conversation about sort of you know what role circumstance played in you know the things we've accomplished like i was very fortunate to be one of the first 500 writers on medium i got a book deal because an editor at penguin stumbled off on an article two years after i wrote it yeah, that was really lucky. And I was 10 years ahead of the curve on podcasts, which became a major cultural trend. Like those are things that you can't replicate. But um, what I'm interested in, like, what are, you know, the ADHD thing, I'm diagnosed ADHD, so I'm all too familiar <laughs> with that. Um, but one thing you talk about is, is systems as well, systems and scale. Like what are the things that you see as far as other personality traits in addition to prioritization um, 
and other things that these people have in common. Because even Justine Musk told me when you know I interviewed her about Elon and she wrote that article on Extreme Success, she's like, people don't see how much work really goes into this. She's yeah. like, the amount of stress these people deal with, she's like, these kinds of accomplishments, if you want to you know, have that sort of extreme success, she's like, it often will come at the cost of everything else in your life. It can. I, I actually... It can, but also it doesn't have to. Let's just start with that. Yeah. Um, that trade is up to the individual. And um, it's a little bit like thinking that you had to be drunk to be a good writer, mm-hmm. to be, you know, you know, to uh, um, we can create what we want to create in life and not necessarily have to have these kind of like pre-described you know, trades. Mm-hmm. Um, but there but, are trades, you know, in, right? Yeah, trade-offs, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but something like there, there's a trade for something. Um, so, I mean, here's, here's a couple things that I, that I find working with really like really amazing creatives with really large audiences that are missing something to build that really effective business. So part of it is just what they have built out in terms of their own, um, kind of pattern recognition, like I have built out a pattern version of, over years that's basically built around business models and revenue and audience and everything else. And I don't know that I could do that and also be building out the pattern recognition that's necessary to be able to do large influence and, and call and response with, with audiences. Mm-hmm. So there's just, there's, there's different things you put your time into. Um, the other thing for me is the most most creatives that build their own business where they are the they are the ceo the coo and basically driving it they become the their own ceiling for what they can create um they they often have a hard time being able to hear their audience because part of what gets them to the place that they can speak so publicly and be so public is they have to be really in tune with them, themselves and their own message um, that sometimes that confidence can actually create a space where it's harder for them to hear what people are saying outside of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times what I am doing is I am going in and partnering with someone, and then I am listening really hard to the cues and the audience and trying to figure where the market is interested in going, which sometimes is not exactly where the brand of the person that is like has, has created that audience is instinctively wanting to go. Yeah. Um, and then I always, I always say like the, we make a career, we, we set our career basically working for ourselves. Like we, we, we create a career by the things that we do for free that we, we invest our love into. We build a business by serving others. Mm. And, um, and and that that balancing act is almost like the inside person versus the outside person. So I'm I am usually basically the inside person that's building the structures, building the systems, trying to like wire everything together on the financial and legal and technical and um, you know business structure and including staffing and teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and generally people I partner with are basically driving the mission and the brand and the and the public face like it is their name and entity and vision that is basically driving the purpose and the mission that we're after 
And then I am basically crafting the engine for them that allows that mission to be accomplished. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, it's funny you actually talk about this idea of, you know, where the market wants to go versus where the entrepreneur wants to go. Cause I, I can relate to that. And more and more, it just, <clears throat> I had a copywriter I worked with and he just would not let go of this question. He was like, you don't know what problem you solve and who you solve it for. That's why we're having such a hard time growing. And <clears throat> you now it, I, I, I realized like there are things that I wanted to create that don't necessarily solve the problems my audience wants me to solve for them. And I, I realized it's like building an audience at a certain point, I realized is less about you and more about them. And it's, uh, you're right. That is such a hard thing to get your head around because, you know, I'm so immersed in this, this message um, that I'm trying to get out to the world. So mm -hmm. how, what is it that goes in that capacity to listen to what the audience is telling you? Like where, how do people develop that and, and what are they listening for? Because I'd imagine this goes far beyond just sending out surveys. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, how do you learn to listen? Um, so I, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that, like what, what kids are missing today. For me, um, there's a lot to be said for quietness mm -hmm. and lack of activity until my boredom or curiosity brings forth like 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 bubbles up something i'm interested in exploring and i think i think like learning to listen means learning to like let a pregnant silence go so that the other person is inspired to say something and and i think there are ways to do that on the aggregate, I, I do a lot of engaging with audience. So, so first of all, surveys are great. Surveys are great. Surveys are great. Creating space for people to be able to tell stories is great. Um, you know what? I think a lot of people, especially people on a mission, listen for evidence to prove that they're right. And if we started off this conversation about, you know, about my parents, about being raised by, by a hippie and a scientist, um, there is a, there's a scientific way of thinking that I'm not a scientist, like, but I think we adopt the mindset of the parents we were raised with, even if we don't have the technical skills, I have this understanding of the scientific method and I have this understanding of how, like I was raised that, 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 that the biggest thing I want to avoid in my life is the hubris to assume that just because I believe something that I'm right, <laughs> that, that I can believe whatever I want to believe. But when I am cherry picking my evidence externally to justify that belief, I have stopped learning and I've stopped creating the opportunity for reality to educate me as to what is really in existence. Mm. Um, because when we when you do a scientific experiment, you have to be really clear on your hypothesis. You have to say, here is what I believe to be the case, or here is what I am wanting to find out. And then you have to honor the results of the evidence. Uh -huh. um, and, and I really do think, like, I think that's what I bring to a lot of conversations. I bring a willingness to be wrong. I bring a real constant willingness to be wrong. Um, and in being wrong, I create a space for the market to teach me what they are interested in without me necessarily trying to prove that I was right in my original guess. Yeah. And that thinking is a terrible way to build a brand in the early stages. And that, that, <laughs> <laughs> because, 
and for what you do, like for what you do, like there has to be a mission for you that is so important to you that you're willing to ignore evidence to pursue it. Yeah. I, look, I, here's, here's, it's funny you say that because they're two, it's almost like these two sort of paradoxes that coexist where mm-hmm. I know that one thing for damn sure. And I know that it often will come at the cost of our metrics. I will never make a choice on a guest based on what that guest would do for our numbers, which is kind of difficult because we're also running a business that's venture funded, right? But mm-hmm. I'm not willing to compromise the integrity of the content. But when I teach people, one of the things I preface is, preface everything I say is I want you to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit because it Mm -hmm. might be for you so much so that I started writing a book titled everybody is full of shit, including me, which is basically about how context distorts our perception of prescriptive advice. Yeah, no, I love that. And I mean, honestly, if I have a superpower, it's a superpower to be willing to be publicly wrong. And to learn. So for me, learning in public is something I'm really comfortable doing. And learning in public means I am comfortable being wrong and undefensive and at, at my best. And when, and when I fall back to protecting my ego, it's usually I'm under stress and it is not, it is not the thing I aspire to be. It certainly shows up at times. And, and I think a lot of cases I am working. Actually, you know what? There's, there's, uh, can I follow this thread? Yes. There is this. So, okay. Let's just talk about high performers. So, so I work with people that are like at the top of their game in some field. And generally, they're at the top of somebody's game, which means that um, they knew enough about the rules and the execution to be able to be at the top 1% of their industry. That means that while they're creating for themselves, they are hyper aware of who is judging and how the judging system works in their place. Be it athletes, be it, be it artists that are, that are super successful, um, CPAs, like in any industry. Um, and when I start to partner with them, they, the, the most common feedback I get from them is basically they are looking to be judged. They are looking to be judged whether they're doing things right. If the, if we are growing fast enough, they are looking for the metrics that they can judge the results. And I am so wired the other way. I am trying to get them to let go of the judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have this belief that most people that are top performers are also battling against themselves with their core strength that they have not yet unlocked. Mm. Um, because, and, and I, I find this to be true with most people that have not done like a lot of, a lot of self work. Um, you can't be the top of someone else's game without being hyper, hyper aware of who does the judging and how you look to them. Um, which means that you were probably raised in some way where where someone along the way really educated you that it's important to do this and not to do that. Yeah. And so they generally have a secret shame that they are hyper aware of that really like they feel like they're battling their entire life. And that shame can be that can that shame can be almost anything, but it is the thing that they were taught when they were younger is wrong about them. While the other stuff that they're doing is the stuff that they are taught that is right about them. Yeah. And the thing is, these are, these are top performers. These are disciplined people. These are people that are like doing amazing things. If they could have cut that piece out of themselves, they would have by now. 
because they have been able to basically like shape their lives to do everything else. Mm -hmm. But there is this thing about them that they have not been able to change because it is core to who they are, but they still see as a negative. Yeah. Um, and where I find that next level of growth that comes from is when they embrace that thing that is the most shameful and like poisonous part of themselves to their own story and start to realize how much of a superpower it is in their life. And when they start to view it as an asset rather than the negative thing, it basically unlocks that next level that takes them from not just crushing someone else's game, but starting to crush their own. I love that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because I think about ADD, you know, as something that yes. for the longest time was my biggest, you know, liability because it was a massive liability when I was working a day job. Mm -hmm. But as an entrepreneur, it's a huge asset because I can do things in the amount of time it takes most people to do the things that most people will take a week to do. I can do in an hour. And, you know, just to, for example, even the way the show started, uh, my friend said Savar was like, you're a pretty average writer. I don't think you should start another blog. He's like, you should spin this interview series out into a separate site. An hour later, I had mocked up a version of a website. I sent it to him, bought the domain <laughs> Blogcast FM, emailed him back with the mock-up and said, is this what you had in mind? When do you want to start? And he was like, he told me this day, he was like, yeah, he was like, I only gave you a suggestion. And then an hour later, I was in the Strini reality distortion field. And yet that same that same behavior you probably grew up seeing as a huge detriment educationally. It, well, um, it, trust me, the, it's a you know being that sort of strongly biased towards action and impulsive mm -hmm. has a downside, depending you, on the you, context. Well, exactly. Depending on relationship, like like I'm sure that there have been relationships that you have hurt. You burn out team members. Oh yeah. Like there's all the there's all these ways, and and the thing is, there are these stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, and depending on who our parents are and the stories that they told us, it, you could view this as the like the worst part of you that is actually like it is the source of everything you've created since embracing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, that's the thing. I think Danny Shapiro in her book, Still Writing, she's like the blessing and the wound or something along those lines, like they're yeah. often next to each other. They're kind of birds of a feather. Um, because yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, like my, my two roommates in, in Boulder, you know, we're talking about, you know, partying and all sorts of other, you know, exploration. And they're like, and I'd be like, I have limits. And they're like, yeah, we've never seen them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So by, by the way, I'm, I'm part of a entrepreneur's organization, EO and, um, yeah, ADHD is is like like often referred to as like the CEO sickness or something like that. Like like is there there is kind of this thread of people that can create amazing things rapidly. Yeah, that um oh it, yeah that have this trait. Well, it, you know, I've been going back through Ned Hallowell's because like mm -hmm. I didn't ever start doing the research on ADD until mm -hmm. you know I got mm -hmm. an informal diagnosis late. I got a diagnosis mm -hmm. from a psychiatrist after you know being fired from what was my very last real job or almost being fired and. At that point, I was like, okay, let me go to a, a psychiatrist and ask. And I remember calling a friend and I was like, what would you tell you if I told you that I might have ADHD? And he was like, well, that explains why you coming over to our house is like a tornado coming through. We find <laughs> stuff months afterwards. And it's still to this day, my friend is like, yeah, mm -hmm. if, if, you know, he's like, there are reminders of the fact that you were here still. And even now when I've gotten it, you know, under control, he told me, he's like, you know, my best friend Gareth and I, we co-host this segment every, every, uh, week called the creativity hour and he's like oh yeah mm -hmm. he's like if strini's over to your house he'll open a cabinet take a glass out and forget to close the door and that's because yeah. i've just moved on so fast to whatever's next on my mind absolutely i i um i yeah i i have at various times tried so 
I failed the, the, the diagnosis, I think in part because, um, I didn't show negative sides in my life. Um, um, so I actually don't know where I am on that, but I've, I've, I've attempted to like, like have a diagnosis previously. And like, I, I'm, I've just kind of made my own peace with my mind, but mm-hmm. yes, like processing the way, way, way we process information and deal with things are just a huge part of who we are. Well, so it's funny you say that because like I process information so fast and I remember telling my friend Charmaine, mm-hmm. like, Hey, I would be a terrible coach. I'm like, I don't want to listen to mm-hmm. people's bullshit and their problems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I explained to her, I was like, I just don't give a fuck about people's emotional problems and I don't want to hear them cry. I'm like, I can make shit happen for them really fast and help them tell, you know, tell them what to do and then give them solutions. She was like, honey, that should be the copy on your landing page if you're going to coach anybody. <laughs> and so I, I basically, you know, as a joke, I put up this Facebook post titled no bullshit coaching. And one of my audience members, uh, actually emailed me. It's like, Hey, Srini, I'm, I'm writing a book and the book is already written and I would like to hire you. Well, I literally just copied that and sent him. I was like, if you're okay with all of this, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you anything you want to hear. I'll tell you what you need to hear because the woman who taught me how to give feedback didn't sugarcoat shit. So I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And he hired me. <laughs> and I was stuck. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I think I found the niche of people that I want to work with. It's like people who are not needing my motivate, you know, they don't need me to motivate them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They're looking for something from you. And this is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, Oh, this has been amazing. So I, I have two final questions for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, with age, I mean, you've gotten to work with all these amazing people. You know, you've been part of all these businesses that have grown to be wildly successful. I mean, you know, creators, 250,000. So mm-hmm. what, how is your definition of what it means to be successful changed with age? How is the value you place on money changed with time? Well, all right. So let I'll, so here's what I aspire. Here, here is my personal aspiration. My personal aspiration is to be so clear on what I want to create for me that I am willing to walk away from everything else that the world values, that I'm willing to sacrifice winning in everybody else's eyes to pursue a losing game as long as the game I'm that I want to play. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so I left Creative Live uh, five years in. Um, at the time, I thought that was going to be like the biggest thing I'd ever been involved in. Uh, but I was ready. To, but I, in stepping away from that, I was honoring something that I really wanted to build. And um, yeah, so I so I am constantly trying to listen to me instead of listening to what the world values. Mm. Um, then the second thing you said, like money. Um, there is a value statement that I, um, that I have for my small teams where I'm working on growth, which is we, to work with me, to create with me, I, I call it a love of revenue. Um, not a love of money, mm-hmm. but a love of revenue. Um, there is something really, really cool about creating things that generate revenue for me. And, um, revenue for me is basically the world trading some of their energy in response to what I'm creating. And for me, it's really like, like I really love creating things that other people value so much that they are going to give part of their life's energy to, to make whatever I've created part of their life. Yeah. Um, 
so I've created a lot of revenue. I'm not sure that I've held on to as much of that revenue as someone who loved money would hold on to. Um, and if anything, that's something over time I'm, I'm been learning more about is just being able to just, um, honor stability and honor space. Um, certainly, certainly I can, I, I don't need money in the short term and like, I probably don't need more money in the short term. Probably there's this three to four to maybe 10 year window that I could work without getting more money. So it's really more now for me about who I'm creating. Oh, and, and sorry, I'm sorry. I'm giving you these long rambling answers. No, the other thing is I love, I love helping. I love having a partner experience their first million dollar event. Mm. Um, um, I, yeah, there's this there for me, there's kind of now this place where for me to create something for me, I have, because I, I'm basically all about partnerships now. I've been doing nothing but partnerships since 2010. So anything I create for me, I am creating with somebody else for them of equal or greater value. Um, and sometimes many people have to be, have to be, have to receive before I get to receive. And I, I just love that part of my life. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how mm -hmm. we finish all of our interviews. What do you think yeah. it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I think, I think for me, it is, I mean, it really comes back to that, that answer about me creating something. I, yeah. Think about this. There's, there's this balance of, so it, it is a balance. I don't know how to put into words, but it is me creating without caring about it's creating for other people to consume without their consumption being necessary for me to be complete. Okay. That, that, so let me, I'm going to take another stab at that. It is to create for my own purposes for others and to be complete in the creation without requiring reciprocation from who I've created it for. Mm. I don't even know if that makes sense, but yeah. to me, that is like, that's like the definition of the definition of like, um, unconditional love in a lot of ways is to give and be complete in the giving because so many people give in expectation of return. And so they are not complete with their gift. And, and mine is to be complete with creating for somebody and to be done with it at the creation moment and to allow whatever happens next to happen. Mm, amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything that you're up to? So the the best place to connect with me is at craigswanson.org. So it's my name at .org. I don't own the .com. I wish I did. Mm -hmm. um, and then LinkedIn is also probably the best place. And and people will book an hour with me all the time and just, um, you know, if if... I'm actually kind of amazed how many people are just booking to have a conversation about how they can take things to that next level if they've got a really huge audience. And it's been really gratifying for me. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.